This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, the lawyer for uh, Karim Baratov says that the charges against his client may be politically motivated. Uh, what are the next steps for the case, uh, and what is the extradition process like? To talk more about all of this, Gary Botting is with us, barrister, solicitor, and expert on extradition, criminal defense, and appeals. Uh, Gary N. A. Botting, barrister and solicitor, and is with us now. Hello, Gary. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, we appreciate this. Uh, wh- with something like this and uh, uh, a, uh, an allegation as in a case like this, what is the process and, and what is the process as far as getting uh, Karim Baratov uh, to the United States? What is that about? Well, the first thing is a hearing, and then after there's an extradition hearing, uh, the person has a chance to appeal to the minister and it's, it's, that's called uh, submissions to the minister that are made. The <clears throat> minister can decide ultimately whether to surrender, and then it goes back to the courts uh, to determine whether the uh, committal judge made a right decision and whether the minister made a right decision. And so there's kind of a double-barreled hearing. And then finally, uh, he, there's an opportunity to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Those, that's the broad strokes of, of what happens. Uh, Assuming that it's all negative decisions all the way down the line, uh, we're talking a process that takes between six months and a year usually, but often it takes a lot longer depending on if uh, you know if a person wins an appeal, for example. So even though we have an extradition process with the United States, this isn't this isn't a slam dunk. This isn't cut and dry. Uh, well, ultimately, in terms of. The ultimate outcome is usually slam dunk, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a lot of processes to go through. And unfortunately, the system isn't fair. It's completely uh, weighted, in fact, against the individual who's trying to fight extradition. And um, this has been the case since the Act first came out in 1999. For a while, for two years, it looked hopeful that uh, individual rights would be honored, but they're not. In this country, uh, it's always a matter of international comedy trumping individual rights. So, uh, so uh, go ahead. So, it's, it's a kind of bleak situation, should we say? However, there are some cases where uh, judges have have shown common sense and have prevailed instead of just simply rubber stamping things or uh, simply just following the precedent that they wrote themselves. Very often, in the case of ministers. Uh, they write it from week to week almost, it seems, and the same wording almost. Um, so it, it, it really is a, a lackadaisical kind of approach to extradition. There's no real decisions being made. So uh, you said that this is not fair to the individual. Uh, it's not fair to the individual because their rights aren't being exercised or this isn't being vetted properly or it's just being rubber stamped. Why, why are they not being all, treated All fairly? of the above, yeah. Um, the system is designed to really uh, comply with your neighbor. Right. That is to say... Uh, if the United States says jump, Canada says how high, and then off off we go. It, it, it's just a matter of how long an individual can hang on to um, to pull every string that's available. And um, usually, 
even if it gets to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, it's a negative decision at the end of the day. Uh, there, there hasn't been a positive decision uh, for for years. And but it's interesting that is that is case, that is that the fault of the system, or is that the fault of there's overwhelming evidence for these people to be extradited? It's a mixture. Um, well, if that's not a bad. That wouldn't be a bad thing, is it? Is wouldn't, this, it wouldn't be a bad thing if if it was consistent in every case. But very often, there's some wiggle room for, for example, prosecution in Canada for some cases, or pro- prosecution in the UK. I suppose sending them back to to, to be dealt with there. Um, but there's, there's wiggle room um, where Canada can take responsibility for uh, cross-border types of, uh, of uh, alleged crimes. And yet Canada always sends individuals back to be prosecuted. For example, if, if Canada charges somebody with uh, an offense here and the, the offense is also being committed in the United States or, for example, uh, marijuana is shipped across the border into the United States and all the... Uh, action is done here in Canada, and yet uh, there is some connection to the United States, Uh, Canada invariably will send them back to the United States to be prosecuted, which means that they get 10 times the kind of sentence that they would here. Right. Um, And and that's that's the downside of everything. There's no rational way of of, uh, dealing with this from a Canadian point of view. Uh, it's, It's always... Okay, our obligation internationally is to send this person back, and it's almost as opposed as opposed to what? Not trying them and face justice, or trying them in their own country? Trying them in their own country, yeah. Uh, That's the alternative: is prosecute or extradite. And that used to be a principle uh, of extradition. You, if you don't extradite them, prosecute them. And you, you, you agree that you're going to prosecute them, just send us the evidence. Uh, Canada doesn't... Uh, why do we want to... Why would we want to spend the time and money prosecuting other countries' cases, though? Well, because they're Canadians, because the, uh, the acts that they've done have been in Canada. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of reasons. Uh, there, there's a, there was a case back in uh, 1999, 2000, um, the Catroni case from Montreal, where they set out all the principles of of um, whether or not a person should be pr- prosecuted in his own country or sent back to the United States in that case. And uh, there are 12 different principles that were set out, and these still are called the, the Catroni principles, and this, the, it's still required that the minister looks at these different principles um, and puts a check beside each one to see that they'd be honored. Um, but the, the Supreme Court recently ruled that even if only one of those principles is met, the minister can send the individual back. So it's, it's a farce. Uh, that so you case, don't, th- uh, your, is your personal opinion, should this person then be extradited, Mr. Baratov? Well, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a... I, I don't know enough about the case, the deep background, to be able to say what the outcome should be, obviously. But uh, it seems to me that the courts generally have have tended to 
rubber stamp. And uh, I've been saying that for years. And in fact, the, the, the Supreme Court has quoted me saying that. Um, and it hasn't changed much. Uh, so how long do you think this process will take for uh, Karim Baratov? You, you're saying it could be relatively quick, it could be rubber-stamped, yet it could drag on for years. Yes, it depends on what approach his lawyer takes and what instructions he gives. Um, we're, we're talking... Um, well, we're, we're, as I said before, we're talking six months at the very minimum, and it could be uh, it could be years. I have one case that has been well. It, he was finally sent back this year, uh, but the initial complaint uh, was brought in 1998. Uh, the extradition uh, request was brought in 2007, and he fought it for seven years. Uh, well, ten years actually. We mm-hmm. uh, went through the court of appeal once and won. Uh, went through the whole process again. Um, went to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, th- this year and and was eventually thrown out. So he ended up going back to the United States, uh, where he's fighting his. Uh, obviously, you can't give in because uh, the United States system is uh, very very harsh in terms of prison time. So, in your opinion, will uh, Mr. Baratov uh, get to the United States, or will he be? Will he stay here? Do you think? Well, the way the law is set up right now, um, there's a 95 percent chance that he'll be sent back to the United States. It will just take a long period of time for that to happen. Yeah. So, in the meantime, what happens to him? Does he stay uh, behind bars, or is he released on bail? Uh, well, if he has security. Uh, and sureties, uh, then certainly he could get bail. He qualifies for bail. And in most of my cases, uh, uh, well, it's, it's almost 50 50 um, as to whether they get bail or remain incarcerated. And it depends partly on uh, has he already been convicted, for example. Um, uh, if, if he hasn't been convicted, in this case, um, then uh, he's to be innocent, and uh, therefore, you know, he's presumed innocent, and therefore he should be granted bail. And uh, the surety might be steep, but, but nonetheless, he should be able to make it. Uh, his uh, attorney has suggested that he's being used as a scapegoat by American authorities. Um, he, he goes on to say, I believe that Trump is using this to make it appear as if he's going after Russian hackers. These allegations are from uh, three years ago. Again, this has been going on for an awful long time. Are there politics involved in here? Uh, yeah, it's almost like the Snowden case in, in a sense. But here, um, it's interesting. I, I had a case uh, where the individual had Asperger's and was working as a telemarketer and had absolutely no clue that what he was doing was against the law. Um, he just was going in, reporting dutifully each day f- to do his job and uh, phoning people saying, do you want this? And he was reading from a script. Um, and everybody else was too, but they all knew what they were doing. And he had he had no clues to the, the enormity of, of um, the inconvenience that this is bringing to older people. And... The judge uh, had a uh, very courageous judge who, who s- simply said, uh, 
this individual, there's no evidence, frankly. Uh, there's no evidence against this individual because she's already dead and the United States hasn't bothered to check. And that's the kind of thing that you have to really check to see whether or not the United States is taking shortcuts. Right. And here it seems that there's every reason for the United States to take shortcuts because they think it's a political matter. When, in fact, you know, it's, it's rather like somebody walks by a bank and, and notices he tries the door because he wants to go to the bank, and, and it's open. And, oh, uh, walks through, and the next door is open, too. And he walks in, and suddenly he finds himself inside a bank that is closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody has left, inadvertently has left the door open. Um, and the alarms go off and so on, and the police catch him inside. Is he, is he accused of bank ro- robbery properly or not? Mm-hmm. You know, he just simply was uh, poking around. Uh, and what's happened is... The, the FBI and uh, other security agencies in the United States have been negligent in in leaving their their doors open, should we say, right. uh, in terms of the internet. And uh, he, here's a kid who's walked through. I mean, I'm not a kid, but he's he was 26, I guess, at the time. But um, uh, you know, he he part, partly is gaming. It's just like the pilots that are up. Over Syria, you know, they have the computer in front of them, and it's just like one more Star Wars game, as far as I'm concerned. Push that button. Okay, oh, there's a guy. So what if these allegations are proving to be correct? Should should this man be extradited? Uh, Not unless he has, uh, indeed, a a guilty mind, should we say. Uh, What we're talking about is uh, the actions. Are they, do, do they seem to prove that he did... Um, um, what is alleged, and but but secondly, did he really intend to uh, hack into these companies and do damage? Or but is ignorance really a defense here, Gary? I mean, this seems like a stretch. Um, is ignorance a defense? It's not ignorance. It's it's a challenge to to beat a system that's supposed to be foolproof, and once you once you proven that it's not foolproof, then you've committed the offense. Uh, so it becomes an offense by the result, by the net result that you've, you've achieved. So uh, it's not quite the, uh, the the situation of trying to commit an offense so much as it is a challenge, one more mathematical equation that you have to solve. And he solved it and in solving it, uh, America alleges he broke the law. You know, he went, uh, he, he committed acts that could be seen to affect the security. I don't know, Gary. There's a, there's, a, there's a difference between walking into the bank when the door's being left open and then physically actually taking money and going out with it. Yes, there is. And, 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 exactly. And, and do you, like, do you, are you convinced that, uh, that a, a grand jury in California would go to this prob- problem to indict this person without having some sort of accurate proof? Well, that's, of course, uh, a, a grand jury means absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, a, a grand jury in the United States is, is like a prosecutor. I guess I'm here. looking for your take on this case, Gary. Do you think that this is that this should be thrown out? Do you think that this is a waste of time and energy? Do you think this should be pursued? What's your opinion on this case? I, I think it should be fought tooth and nail, uh, and uh, that the lawyer is doing a good job in, in trying to prevent his being 
extradited willy-nilly back to the United States. Um, you've got to remember the grand jury system is, is it's simply another form of rubber stamping. And, uh, you know, as grand jurors, people who sit on grand juries are paid. They're, they're semi-professional, quasi-professional people to do the job that they do. It's rather like a, almost like a parole board. Um, and they're paid to, to uh, bring these indictments. And uh, so it's just a question of, a, uh, again, a rubber stamping process where the prosecutor comes in and says, this is the one I want to I, I just have a hard time figuring that, I just have a hard time believing that there's a rubber stamp process when there's a, an alleged hacking that involves, you know, however many, 500 million emails with Yahoo. I can't see anything with a case that being, that big being just rubber stamped. Like, it's a pretty well, complex case, Gary. Oh, and there's no doubt it's a complex case. Anyway, i got to let you go there, unfortunately, because we are simply out of time. Gary Bodding has been with us, and I appreciate your time, Gary. Barrister, solicitor, and expert on extradition. Gary and a Bodding, barrister and solicitor. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Conservative leadership candidate Kevin O'Leary is making allegations of fraud and widespread vote rigging in the race. Uh, They say that campaign activists are using prepaid credit cards to sign up fake members. Uh, How does this affect the race going forward? Does this open up the doors for even more uh, comparisons uh, comparisons to Trump? Dr. Cheryl Collier is with us, political science professor, University of Windsor, and with us now. Hello, Cheryl. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, Trying to make some sense of the world, and boy, I just seem to be lost with every step, whether I'm turning left or right. I just don't know what ends up anymore, Cheryl. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about conservative leadership candidate uh, Kevin O'Leary. What do you make of these allegations? What is he talking about? Well, it's interesting. I guess if I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he has found uh, a little bit of evidence of some people maybe uh, uh, signing up uh, uh, members with uh, without their knowing about it. Um, although I don't know what the value of that would be, to be honest with you, because those people would have to actually cast a ballot later on. Uh, so uh, that that part of, of potentially the uh, uh, the um, uh, the ruse going on here of signing up more members is is a little bit lost on me. But uh, that maybe there's uh, some kind of padding, particularly, and I believe that the uh, without him saying so, that the indication is that it's the other front runner, so to speak, at this point. Uh, so O'Leary is is, uh, is lobbying these uh, these charges over to the uh, the Maxime Bernier camp. Uh, that they're, uh, they are signing people up without those people actually paying for the memberships themselves using, uh, prepaid credit cards. Um, and, so uh, in other words, is, the, so in other words, the party would be giving people, uh, here, saying, here, you go sign up, we'll pay for it, here's the prepaid card. That's right. And, and I, I suppose if, if the, uh, if the cost of membership was prohibitive, uh, that that might, make some sense is that they're they're helping those people some way to uh to gain access but uh it is only fifteen dollars so i i don't think that is a prohibitive amount although uh maybe it is a barrier for one or two people i can't imagine it's a barrier for a lot of people um and i uh, i i'm not sure really what the what the game plan is here if this is not true other than to maybe start to raise some questions about the process for people not following it very closely uh is he alleging that people are signed up and they don't know that they are signed up 
Um, I did read that that was potentially one aspect of this, that that the campaign was signing up um, people that were members of the Progressive Conservative uh, Party uh, in Ontario, because you, of course, don't have to sign up for the federal party. There is no uh, liaison or direct liaison between the provincial party and the federal party. Um, And again, I'm not sure what the benefit of that would be, because, of course, if you sign up, uh, people to support you, those people actually have to cast a ballot uh, during the leadership, uh, the actual convention on on the date of the of the convention. So I, I can't imagine why you would want to sign people up that wouldn't cast a ballot. There's no real uh, benefit to that. Um, I guess unless you want to say your numbers are higher uh, from people you sign up, but but again, I, I I don't really see any value in that. So I'm not sure about that part of the. Uh, of the um, mm. uh, the charge that's so being made. So obviously, there's no sense to the anonymity of it all because you won't get that vote in the in the long run anyway. No, yeah. uh, if mm-hmm. I got signed up without my knowledge, then why would I cast a ballot if I didn't want to be part of signing up? Uh, but is it about casting? Is up? it about casting ballots or just the amount of members that you sign up? Oh, um, the members don't mean anything unless they, unless do, they do actually cast a, a, a vote. So I don't, again, I don't see the value in this other than if the O'Leary camp somehow is is trying to uh, to cast some aspersions about the whole process and, and raise some questions about it later on. And and again, I'm not sure what the end game is there, but it's it seems to be a little bit suspect to me at the moment. And I can't even imagine if it did, con- uh, if it was true, and let's say it is, and that there's uh, it's some some benefit to the Bernier camp that they could do it in the amount of numbers that it would matter. Hmm. Uh, obviously, the Conservative Party says the rules are clear that if you're going to buy a membership, you must do so. Uh, the membership fee must come out of your own pocket. That this sort of thing is not allowed. Mm-hmm. It, how do you prove this? That's a good question. I don't know. And uh, actually, so, uh, Bernier himself had said that he had somebody that asked him if he could use his mother's credit card to sign up. I, I don't know why, but uh, maybe he wow. didn't have a credit card if he was younger. And uh, Bernier said, no, you cannot. You have to use your own credit card. So uh, I think it, when when uh, the Conservative Party says the rules are clear, I think everybody does understand those rules. It's either a check or a personal check or a credit card. I can see this potentially being a problem for younger members because you may not have a credit card if you are a, uh, a youth member, um, yeah, because it takes a while to to to, uh, to get access to that. It's possible, I suppose, that you might not have a, a checking account as well. But even in those cases, I, I'm uh, I, I would say that uh, they would have to be uh, told that they they have to either get a credit card or a checking account and be able to to uh, follow the process as it's been set out by the uh, by the party. So where does he go with this from here? I mean, does he have to substantiate this claim in some way? Well, I think by raising it, the Conservative Party has said that they will look into it themselves because I think in the long run it is in their best interest to make sure that the um, uh, the process remains uh, free of any kind of, of issues or problems or or any potential for uh, for fraud or uh, being raised. Um, it, it's really important when you're when you're holding a leadership contest that nobody feels that they are being uh, treated unfairly um, and that the process is being followed to the letter of of the uh, the rules as set out by the party. So the party has said that they are going to look into this. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, if O'Leary is going to come up with some kind of proof of this uh, further, or if this is just. Uh, and, and I heard you mention Trump in your uh, in your um, uh, 
uh, your intro there, maybe this is like a Trump uh, tweet that you can just put out there and then let let go and see if it if it helps you at all. Why do you think Kevin O'Leary would do this? if he didn't think it was true, because, of course, it, immediately it just draws comparisons to Trump, you know, with the whole rigging thing. Um, and, and at this point, I, I'm guessing that he probably wants to distance himself from O'Lear, from Trump rather than being compared to him. At least that's what I've heard him say. So uh, what's in this for him, do you think? I, you know, I really don't know, other than if he's getting a little concerned about how close the race is. But again, we don't know. Um, from or, what or, I maybe, or maybe do you think he thinks this is going, I mean, is there a chance that this is going on? Um, it's well, that's possible. I guess it is possible. But again, I would I would caution if it's going on. Is it going on in any numbers that we would have to be concerned about? Um, and if you look at how many people that are in the Conservative Party, uh, you know, from I've heard estimates that there's about 80,000 members in the Conservative Party of kind of core members that were members before this race started uh, across Canada. And right now we're talking, uh, the last report I saw was somewhere around 100,000. So it looks like 20,000 members, new members have been signed up. In the long run, I don't think all 20,000 will be ones that have followed through on this potential fraud of not using their own credit card. Uh, so what numbers are we talking about here? A couple of hundred? Uh, you know, maybe let's say it's a thousand just for just for uh, argument's sake. Is that really going to change uh, in this ranked ballot uh, system where every riding has an equal uh, weighting across Canada, all three, 338 ridings, uh, and you're getting a percentage of those 100 votes uh, or 100 points that are allotted to each of the ridings? I, I just can't see a, a statistical model that this would make a difference. How... How does the Conservative Party balance this without shooting themselves in the foot? I mean, it's like, you know, it certainly isn't as bad as the Republicans with Donald Trump, but uh, it may only be a couple of steps behind. How, how, do, they, how do they come out of all of this and, and, and actually have a, a plausible chance of winning? Um, you know, this is a good question, and this is one of the the, da- the dangers of any leadership races um, before elections. And usually parties try to time a little bit uh, the, the leadership vote uh, to give them enough time, or at least the new leader time, to kind of set uh, some good roots um, and to, to uh, put their own identity forward and, of course, solidify the party and, and rally the party around whomever it is that that, that, that ends up winning. Um, because you're going to get, it, in any kind of fight, you're going to have these kinds of uh, back-and-forth uh, divisions between uh, front-runners or, or even people that aren't really front-runners that are trying to get some airtime. And particularly in this race, when you have 14 people running and yeah. four, and nobody dropping out, uh, it's uh, it's really hard to get that attention. So there have been uh, instances of, of some pretty negative uh, fights inside the party coming to to the to the fore uh, in the media that don't look good on the party. So I, it, this I don't know if this is in the same camp as some of the other divisions that maybe the conservatives want to stay away from in the next election, but it could be um, if we uh, if we have this kind of discussion about uh, uh, everybody being in it for themselves or or I guess trying to rig systems uh, and not being trustworthy and maybe that is something that could come back to haunt them later. Um, but I'm thinking more about the, uh, the 
discussion about um, Canadian values and uh, and immigration, etc., that really isn't reflective of, of the core of the party, but seems to be quite uh, distracting in, in how much airtime it's getting and, and how it it doesn't seem to be playing well with the with the Canadian public overall and, and may, again, come back to bite the party when the election comes around, um, you know, in, in a few years' time. We're living in a very weird time, aren't we? Or, or is it just the age that I am right now? It seems that nobody trusts anybody and victory is confusion. That is true. And I think this is some of that populism we have seen uh, to the south of, of the border. And, and that, that, to be honest with you, we're not immune from in Canada. If you if you think about the populist rise of, of uh, Rob Ford in Toronto, for, an ex- for example, there, there has been, uh, I think, less of a connection between the regular public and uh, the people that are politicians and that are, are running to be politicians. And there's a there's a distrust. That distrust has been rising. We see it in the the uh, the lack of participation at the polls uh, that have, that has been a problem for for many years, um, and uh, I think there are some people that that want to demonize the people that do put their name forward to run for public service as being somehow out of touch, being elite, being different than the rest of us, and that um, is is somewhat dangerous. And I think that is reflective of some of the discussions that we're having now. We we seem to be, uh, you know, uh, I I. I suffer this myself and maybe because we're similar age I'm not sure but uh, when I watch the US uh, 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 stuff coming up uh, there's a daily watch on the things that that are uh, that Trump is saying and doing that seems to fall way outside of the norm in, in normal politics that seems to be normalized now and after a while, I think that will become somewhat infectious uh, because we have similar tensions here in Canada, and, and maybe that's why we're seeing some of these things come to play. It just seems that we live in a land of extremes. It's either extreme this way or extreme that way, and the the middle just isn't doesn't seem to be represented. Um, you, you know, I mean, during the campaign in the United States, uh, you, you know, people Trump he is what he is, and there it is. You know, you don't have to point your finger; he'll he'll point it himself. Um, and and we see we saw the opposition, the Democrats attack him for what he was, and and all the obvious uh, you know downfalls that he has. But on the other hand, the Democrats failed to realize why the majority of the American population would still pick him, even though knowing his faults, than they would the status quo. And it seems that that's the point we're missing, that we're so busy insulting everybody's character that we're not understanding how they even got elected. And and, and again, at the end of the day, it's because it's anybody but the status quo. And it, I'm not sure either party gets that yet. That's true. Um, and again, this is this is one of the things that populism on both sides of the scale, right wing populism or left wing populism is is uh, is connecting with with uh, with regular voters is this complete disconnect uh, between what politicians are doing and what everybody else would like to see them doing. And part of that disconnect is a lack of good discourse on these things. And when you, you're right, when you're looking at who's to blame for the lack of discourse or the uh, the, the fact that we can't talk about things, issues, and, and, and people can understand them, is because politicians have really pushed us to this. They've, they've, it has been become about demonizing the other side, about oversimplifying issues, about, uh, you know, 
being either or. You're either with me or you're against exactly. me. Exactly. Th- those are not really helpful discussions. They don't help us come to solutions. They end up, uh, you know, further dividing people in society. And and every society is is um, is uh, could be victim to these kinds of things. And we're seeing that I think more and more, not just here, but we're seeing it in in uh, in legislatures across the world, Western democracies, where this this is this has been a kind of a, a, a slippery slope, I think that we've we've been all on um and i'm not sure i wish i could tell you a solution of how do we get to a better discourse uh that uh that kind of avoids this but maybe we have to bottom out a little bit on this that was my next question exactly cheryl is what will the next leader look like will we see more donald trump's before the pendulum swings back the other way it's possible um there's a lot of a lot of people out there have just had it with this with not things not getting done yeah. and and sometimes when you do you throw up your hands and say I'm going to try something else yeah um, something ridiculous well Why we not, saw it with right? Bre- we saw it with brexit we've seen it with mm-hmm. Trump yeah absolutely and you can understand how a simple let's just try something else vision would yeah. would would have some kind of, of appeal to people especially if you already feel so distant from those politicians because you just you don't feel like you have any say anyway so this is one way to make people to, to stand up and take notice of you as as an electorate to say well you know what you guys are have been screwing up so long we're going to go in this direction and really show you that we just don't we don't want to go in this direction anymore so, so, so I, yeah go ahead yeah, i'm not sure oh i was just going to say i'm not sure you know how we get off of that until the uh, that opposite. You know it, it, that, and we're seeing it obviously in the, in the United States right now because they have gotten that candidate into office, and he is, for all intents and purposes, doing things completely differently than most other people have up to this point in time. But we'll see whether or not there's uh, there's a reckoning of some sort of maybe this isn't the way to go. And I, but I think everybody has to kind of go through that before that that option is is. Uh, is uh, kind of uh, put in that light. And what happens when or if the public loses faith, or the core public loses faith in Trump? What, what happens when they realize, well, he's just an elite too? Where do we go from there? That's this is a good question. I, you know, I guess for me as a political science professor, I would hope that people would become more interested and more involved and more educated. I think we we do a disservice for not. Uh, really taking the time to uh, to get people interested in what happens with politics. I hear all the time that politics is boring. It's not. It's not for me. It's it's just it's a waste of time. Um, and it's not. It's these are the people that make your decisions about your money. Your your you know what you can and can't do in the world. They have a ton of power. And if we are so disconnected from it and we don't understand what they're do what we're doing or what they're doing, how can we hold them to account as a democracy. Our democracy is somewhat, uh, you know, uh, a shell of, of what it should be. And so I would like to see kind of more of a broad-based reaction of, of more people getting involved. And I suppose we see a little bit of this. Some people are getting more involved in grassroots politics. Whether or not that's going to make a difference, I don't know. But at least they're reading about and becoming more educated about things. And that's better than disengaging. Maybe this is the result of several decades of not being engaged. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Collier has been with us, political science professor, University of Windsor. Cheryl, thank you for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. You're very welcome. You have a great day. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Do you remember rent control? 
Uh, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? A proposed bill from the Ontario NDP would close a loophole that exempts buildings that were built before 1991 from rent control. However, some argue that would have a negative impact on the economy uh, and just eventual, and eventually just slow down the amount of renting stock that there is as opposed to encouraging more. To talk more on all of this, Jane Launderville is with us, Professor, University of Guelph's Real Estate and Housing Program, and with us now. Hello, Jane. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. I remember hearing about rent control in years past. Where are we with it now? Does it still apply? Are there still some buildings that fall under this? There's lots of buildings that fall under this. So anything that was built before 1991 is subject to rent control. If it was built after 1991, it's um, it still is covered under all the rent protection kinds of things. So eviction policies and all that sort of stuff are covered. But you can, and you can still only cre- increase the rent once a year on those units, mm-hmm. but you can increase it as much as you think you can get. So uh, buildings built since 1991 can increase rent uh, as much as they think they can get in once a year. So that would apply to things like condos that are being rented out, for example. So most of the rental stock has been, was built prior to 1991. Um, so it's still subject to the limits that the province sets every year on rent controls. But uh, stuff built later on is, is not. Uh, what is the advantage or disadvantage of having a cutoff point of 1991? How did we arrive there? I think the idea was um, that people wanted, at the, I think it was set probably in 91, I don't know, sometime around then. And the idea was um, eventually we'll build, keep building new stuff, and we'll work our way out of rent control. I think that was what the government, rather than just saying we're scrapping rent control today, they said, well, we'll just build our way out of it. But there's been so very little new rental housing stock built in Ontario in the last 30 years that that didn't really happen. Why Why are they not building rental stock in Ontario? Is uh, it, it because of rent control? It doesn't make contro- economic sense. Um, so there, very recently there's been some new stuff being built just in the last three, four years. So in Toronto, for example, they're, they're building new rent, purpose-built rental buildings, but they're very high-end, so they're charging high rents. They're not for, they're for people who are choosing to rent because they don't want the, to be tied down to home ownership or whatever. They're not for the average person who is renting because they can't afford home ownership. So um, obviously critics of rent control will say that it hinders new development. Does it do that? Uh it's it's really um, there, to some extent it does. Uh, so there, if you're going to build a new building now, I think the the rental stock is old enough that was built before '91 that if you build a new building with all the bells and whistles like the condos have, you can charge a, a quite a bit higher rent. Right. But you're competing against buildings that you know don't have that right and are much lower rent. So it's it's just not it hasn't been economical to at, at average market rents or even high end market rents hasn't been economical to build something and uh, and rent it out you just would not make money on it. So does rent control have any bearing on that at all then? I mean if it's just a, a pure uh, economics. Well, to the extent that it's it keeps maybe rents on um, older buildings low and that's what you're competing against to some extent it would have an effect. Um, but I think there's just, uh, you know, I'm from living Guelph, where we've had a 1% vacancy rate for a uh, long time now. So if you built, there are now building purpose-built rental here, and, and you can charge a lot because there's nothing to replace it, sort of. 
So, uh, obviously, coming off rent control, some people are going to get burned. Yes. Yeah. So, and they're going to be the people who can least afford to be burned. Right. The people who rent um, because they can't afford home ownership, a lot of those people are paying way more than 30% of their income on their rent. Right. Uh, even now, with, that, with rent controls on. So what's the answer here? Is the answer more rental stock? I think it would be great if we could have more rental stock, but you know, it's it's gotta it's either gotta be um, subsidized in some way to get developers to build it, because um, otherwise they're or it's there's it's gonna be high end luxury rental, which is doesn't really help the average person. So there's no interest in anybody building rental properties for the average person. No, the the stuff we are building in that category is built under the affordable rental program. So the Provincial and federal governments are giving a big capital subsidy to get those built. And then the people who run them have to charge 80% of average market rents for a 20-year period. That's the payback. So, But we're building very few units under that program. How has this all changed over time? How does this compare to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? I don't, I don't think it has changed a lot over time. Um, I mean, if you look at vacancy rates, they're, um, you know, some places have higher vacancy rates, and they're much more, it's much easier for renters to find a decent place at a reasonable price. But um, it's, there's lots of places like Toronto and Guelph and wherever where demand is high enough that it's, uh, uh, there's not that much stock out there. Uh, is there an, the NDP floating the idea of, of rent control and closing the loophole, as they said, that was created back in 1991? Um, is there an appetite for this? I don't think so. It's, it's in a sense, what it does is, you know, people built buildings after 1991 under the rule that they wouldn't be subject to rent control. And so by then folding them into the rent control thing, you're, you're in a sense, you're penalizing those people. Because yeah. you know, they will immediately take a hit on the value of their buildings because they can't now increase rents as rapidly as they have in the past. And there probably wouldn't be an appetite to build anymore at that point. No. They'd be saying, you, you promised us a, a, this, this regime and now you've taken it away. We're not going to be fooled again. So I don't think that, I don't think it really helps. I think that, I think the other parts of rent control are really critical too, which are the, you know, the tenant protection and eviction policies and all of that, those are critical to keep in place. And they are... That just, seems like, that just seems like common sense and good business. That should be in place, should it not? I mean, right I, across the board? I, it's, it's really consumer protection. I yeah. mean, there are, there are lots of great landlords out there, but there are, are unscrupulous ones, too, who say, you know, I think I couldn't get... It, it, now, if you have an, a vacant apartment, so somebody moves out of the apartment that you're renting, mm-hmm. you can charge whatever rent you want on that when you release it. So there's a sort of bit of incentive if vacancy rates drop to try and kick out a tenant who's not paying what you think is market rent. So the eviction prevention uh, policies, and I think, are really critical. Uh, interest rates are low, which obviously stimulates buying. Uh, has that affected the rental stock in the sense that more people are trying to get into homes? But I mean, with the prices, that's just as difficult, is it not? It is. And there, that's, that's true for the people who are, as I say, renting by choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're a fairly small part of the um, 
total rental population, I'd say. There's, so there's a lot of people who just are never going to be able to afford a home. Yeah. And I think we need to protect the rental stock for those people. So what's the answer here? How do you move forward and encourage the, the building of new properties and yet not obviously price them so people are out on the street? Well, one way to do it is we changed the tax laws in Canada a long, long time ago. And you used to be able, to, as a owner of a rental property, you used to be able to obviously claim the expenses on the property against the income, and you could claim um, interest on the mortgage, and you can still do that. But you also used to be able to claim depreciation or capital cost allowance, which is a non-cash expense. It's not something you're actually paying. It's just your building's getting older. Mm-hmm. And, and you could then create a loss with that, which wasn't a real loss, and you could claim that against other income. So that made it more, uh, you know, you were reducing your taxes somewhere else by having this capital cost allowance deduction. And so that would be, if we brought that back in, that would encourage people to invest in uh, rental properties. Um, it would cost the government some foregone tax revenue, but it's, it's I think, a better than introducing some kind of subsidy to build more units. It doesn't appear like there's any solution on the horizon at this point. No. So considering housing market, the housing market is the way it is, the condo market is the way it is, where does this leave everyone? Yeah. Well, I mean, the condo market has saved the rental market in places like Toronto. Mm-hmm. If, you, if we didn't have, I mean, people say, why are they building so many condos? Well, half of those, not half, but something like 25, 30, 40 percent are rented to right. people who, who want to live in the downtown area and, uh, and can't afford to buy is that the look of the new rental building, a condo that someone purchases as an investment and then leases out, rents out? Uh, certainly in, in big cities it has been, yeah. It's, that's been the stock for rental. What's, what's to stop that from happening to the smaller communities? Nothing. Uh, it just has to make sense economically for the investor. Um, and so, yeah, it's, and it's, I mean, it's happening here. There are people who are buying condos in Guelph and renting them to students, so I'm sure mm-hmm. it's happening in... Hamilton as well. Uh, as we move forward with this, will the condo development be enough? Uh, will that provide enough stock for renters? Uh, uh, it's hard to say. It's sort of a demand and supply thing. Um, certainly, there are. We have had condo developments in Guelph that are basically built, knowing they're going to be bought by investors and rented to students. Right. And they're that's the whole purpose of them. And um, so, and they set set them up as the developer will continue to manage them. Mm-hmm. So it's a passive investment for you as a as an investor. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, condos pop up in Toronto like they're mushrooms. Uh, it got to the point where people w- would start hearing reports that it was saturated. If there is a situation with rental properties, are they saturated? I mean, is there still room for more? I think there is. I think there's, um, you know, the renting a condo is is not ideal because you now have a layer of the owner of the condo unit between you and whoever's managing the building. Yeah, as a middleman. So, so as a tenant, yeah. you can run into problems in that situation. Um, so it's it's. I think purpose built rental is is a better way, but you have to have an economical for the investor. Are governments of the day paying enough attention to this? I I don't think they're paying enough attention to housing in general. Um, they're paying a whole lot of attention to uh, 
price increases across the country and fiddling with mortgage insurance rates and things. But I don't think they're spending enough time talking about um, social housing and the contracts that are expiring on that and the just general rental stock as well. Uh, do we need to build more? There was lots of chatter earlier on in the week and even last week, uh, Builders Association saying, you know, it's not about adding a foreign tax, it's about just building more stuff. So, we've, you know, it's not enough supply. That's what's sending pro- uh, prices through the roof. Do we just simply need to build That's more? That's true in certain, yeah, in certain jurisdictions, yeah. Uh, for many, many years, it was stop the urban sprawl, stop the urban sprawl. Let's fill in the, uh, you know, the, the uh, infield areas. Let's, let's build up instead of out. Uh, let's, you know, create more congestion. Are we still going in that direction, or have we realized we've hit a saturation point with these metropolitan areas, and we now have to face the fact that, yeah, we've got to build communities outward? No, I think there's still, I mean, that green belt's still in place. I think it'll stay in place. Um, and if you look at part of the reason house prices are so high in downtown Toronto is the millennials who work in downtown Toronto want to live there. Yeah. And they want to live there even after they have children. Mm-hmm. They don't want to move to a suburb and commute for an hour each way every yeah. day. So it's, it's partly preferences of the people who are living there, too. Are Torontonians uh, aware of the fact that they may one day not be able to live there? Simply, I mean, you know, you, you look at cities like New York and that have just got to the point where uh, they're major, major centers and, and things get pricey. Is Toronto at that point yet? Uh, it's not quite there, but it's, it's getting there. And I think they're, um, my son and his girlfriend are trying to find something to buy in downtown Toronto, and they're having a lot of, a lot of trouble. So yeah. it's... it's uh, even with two incomes, it's difficult to, to find something. Is there any easy fix here, Jane? I mean, is is this is like an ongoing problem with government. I'm, you know, they've been yakking about this since the 70s. That's true. Um, there is uh, a new national housing strategy in the works, and we're hopeful that it will um, bring together some different segments of government to look at the problem a little more carefully. So hopefully... Jane Launderbill has been with us, Professor, University of Guelph's Real Estate and Housing Program. Jane, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.